The reading for today is from Acts chapter 28, 30, and 31. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, thank you, Nick. And yes, actually, I think that that should just be a requirement of membership to be interrogated by Steve, because uh, we've all had it happen. No, but it was great to get to hear from him, uh, get to uh, see all the various ways in which God is working in this church. Um, before we get into it, I do want to address, uh, obviously, uh, there was a tragic shooting that happened at the beginning of the, uh, this week. Um, the church, in the midst of these things, is called to mourn with those who mourn. We want to pray for those that were affected. So I want to actually, before we get into it, I want to just pray for that. Um, and, and, and in the midst of praying for that, just that we would remember that our hope is in Christ, our hope is in the resurrection, and, uh, and then we'll move forward. So let me pray. Lord Jesus, we lift up specifically, Lord, the victims, those uh, that were lost in uh, the shooting this last week. God, we pray for the families affected by that, Lord, for the city that was affected by that. We pray for, our, for the churches this Sunday morning in Las Vegas. God, as they have to come and, and, and mourn alongside uh, a city that is hurting, God, we pray that you would give them incredible wisdom, Lord, you'd give them incredible patience, Lord, that you would remind them that their deep hope, Lord, is not in this life, it's not in this world, but Lord, that you are making all things new, Lord, that we have hope that uh, you uh, who died, Lord, came alive again, and we are going to come alive again with you. But Lord, we pray for those things. Lord, we pray that um, your peace and comfort would be made known and made clear. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, it is, it is great to be kind of back into the swing of things. Two weeks ago, I was in Ethiopia. Uh, kind of as a part of a team representing this church in developing some of the future partnerships that we can have with specifically with an organization called Hope for Children. We're, uh, we've intentionally not told you a whole lot about the trip, mainly because one of the people that came along with us was a videographer. We are putting together a video that I believe will tell the story really well. So instead of telling it poorly right now, we're going to wait and tell it well be able to kind of share how we as a church are specifically planning to come alongside the work that they're doing. Um, but that's where it was, and it's incredible to be able to leave like that and uh, have just an incredible team that, that carries the torch forward and, and does a great job. So I'm so thankful for them, what they do. Yeah, we can clap for them. And, and you got a break from me, which, which is nice. Um, well, today is the last day in the book of Acts. It is hard to believe that what started at the beginning of the year, we've been able to walk through this whole thing. Um, and for one, we've gotten to learn that Frank loves maps in a way that I think is a little uncomfortable and unhealthy. Uh, we've gotten to hear once again how the Godfather somehow relates to the book of Acts. Uh, for me, you've gotten to hear just a lot of weird taco jokes and uncomfortable pictures of me with fanny packs. Um, so... We've gotten to go through a lot, but hopefully there's some big themes that have come out from this. There are some things that God has taught our church as we have looked at how the church started. Um, and that's really what we're going to do today. Uh, we're we're going to walk through how the book of Acts closes, but really we're going to spend most of our time 
thinking about and, and, and talking about what are the bigger implications of the book of Acts, both in general and specifically in the life of this church. So in doing that, I want to I look at how the book of Acts ends. If you remember, Paul, where we left off, Paul was on his way to Rome via ship. He is under Roman guard. He has been arrested. He is going to appeal the case that started chapters back in Jerusalem. He's going to appeal that case ultimately to Caesar. As a Roman citizen, that was his right. And so he was bringing it to Rome. And if you remember, God told him in a vision that as he declared these truths in Jerusalem, he was going to declare these truths in Rome. So regardless of all the shipwrecks and all of the, all of the things holding him back, he is convinced that he will get to Rome and be able to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ in Rome. And so we pick up kind of right after the shipwreck happened in chapter 28. Starting in verse 1, after we were brought safely through, this is the shipwreck kind of landing on the island of Malta, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all, because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. Paul just cannot get a break. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. When they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Now the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery, and Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. So that's what happens in Malta. From there, they're able to go along on a, on a different ship, kind of up the coast of what we now know as Italy, and ultimately make their way to Rome. Because of the favor that Paul garnered throughout this journey with the Roman guards, he was able to basically live by himself. He had a, a Roman soldier that lived with him, but for the most part, he was able to live by himself, basically live as freely as you can if you're under Roman guard. Um, and one of the things that he did, and this is a very... Uh, true to how Paul kind of just operated when he would come to a new city, he reached out to the local synagogue. He always started kind of there. Uh, he reached out to some of the Jews living there and basically said, hey, I'd love to come and discuss this. And they said, you know, we don't actually have heard nothing bad about you. They've not sent any word. So I'm not sure what the Jews in Jerusalem have said about you. We haven't heard anything. We have heard about this sect that they call it, they, what they refer to as the way, that Paul represented, and they said, we have heard bad things about that, but would be interested in hearing from you. So they kind of set up a meeting, they dialogue back and forth, and this is kind of ultimately where it ends, starting in verse 23. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God, and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. 
The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear but never understand, and you will indeed see but never perceive, for this people's heart has grown dull. With their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal, heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. Clearly, he is not holding back. He's not laying low in Rome. He is proclaiming the same message that he has consistently proclaimed every single place that he's sent to. And then we get to what was read earlier. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And that's the end of the, the book of Acts. That's the way it ends, with Paul in Rome teaching and preaching and proclaiming the good news to anybody who would hear it. Now, if it sounds like a nice, happy ending, we need to remember what hap has happened to Paul. And I think a great way is actually hearing Paul kind of recount <laughs> all the terrible things that have happened to him. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 24, he kind of lists off all the things. And this isn't even a complete list. This was written at a time kind of before he had even fully experienced all the struggle and pain that he went through. But he says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. That's the 39 lashes from a whip. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Not, you know, the modern day stoning. The old, old school stoning. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journey, journeys in dangerous from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, and toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness." The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. Needless to say, Paul went through some stuff. Paul suffered. We get to the end of Acts, and what we know from history is that this is not where the story ended. So I kind of want to tell you the rest of the human story of the book of Acts. Paul, after this, was actually released from Rome and was able to travel through Asia for a little while before being sent back to Rome. And there it was when he was finally kind of brought to, ju brought to justice in their eyes and was beheaded, which is the typical way a Roman citizen would have been executed. So Paul ends up being beheaded in Rome. Peter, who we also got to see a lot of in the book of Acts. Acts was crucified probably around the same time in Rome, upside down by Nero, because he didn't feel fit and honorable to do so in the same way that Christ died. Andrew, who was another one of the apostles, was scourged and crucified in Greece. James, was, James who is known as James the Greater, was killed by a sword, which we actually saw in the book of Acts. John, who's the only one to actually die of natural causes, if we can call him that, was burnt with oil and exiled, and exiled to the island of Patmos. Philip was scourged and crucified in Egypt. Bartholomew was skinned alive and beheaded in India. 
Thomas was killed with a spear in India. Matthew, who after speaking uh, against some of the morality of the king of Ethiopia, was stabbed by, in the back by an assassin. James was beaten, stoned, and killed by a club to the head. Thaddeus was crucified in Turkey. And Simon, not Simon Peter, but Simon the Zealot, Zealot was ultimately crucified in England. They should have probably had a warning at the beginning of the book of Acts, don't get attached to these people. <laughs> it's almost like Star Wars Rogue One. <laughs> a few of you got that. Um, but really, you, you read this, and it's just terrible. This is a terrible, tragic story of human suffering, of what would on a surface level look like a complete failure. It's a complete failure. So we have to ask the question, why wasn't this included in the book of Acts? I think that that is a fair question. There are some scholars who say that the book of Acts was written at the early 60s, which means that if that was true, none of this stuff had actually happened yet. So that's one explanation, is the reason Luke didn't include the stuff in the book of Acts is because it hadn't happened when he wrote it, which makes sense. However, most scholars would put Acts later, that Luke probably wrote it in 70 or 80. So most of this stuff had happened. So it is a fair question, why did the book end here? What was Luke trying to communicate in the book, in this story? And what we realize is the theme that we've talked about before, that although the story is driven from a narrative standpoint by the apostles, that is not what this book is about. This book is about the movement of the Spirit, starting in Jerusalem, moving into Samaria, and ultimately going to the ends of the earth. And in the minds of the reader, the ends of the earth was Rome. So once the gospel made it to Rome, through kind of the character of Paul, through Paul, there was no reason to really continue the story, because the story was not ultimately about Paul. It was not about Peter. It was not about James or John. It was not about Philip or Stephen, or any of the other main characters that we've seen in here. The story was about the victory of the Holy Spirit in the midst of the persecuted church. And we see that. So although all of this junk happens to these people, all of this terrible stuff happens, this book is ultimately a story of God's victory. So let's look at that, because this is one of the big things that we need to see in the book of Acts, that the failure of man is ultimately the victory of the Holy Spirit. That through weakness, through persecution, through death, through all of these things, the Holy Spirit still moves forward, conducting his mission of redeeming his people, bringing all tribes, all nations, all tongue into one community, which is the church. That is what the Spirit set out to do from the very, very beginning, and that is what he is continuing to do now, despite all of the things that go against the church. If we look here, despite all of this stuff that happened at the beginning of the church, the church is now in every single country of the world. The entire Bible has been translated into over 636 different languages. There are an estimated 2.2 to 2.9 billion Christians Worldwide, And that's alive, currently alive today, 2.2 to 2.9 billion Christians in the world. And Christianity, although in the West there is, there's shown some decline, worldwide Christianity is still the fastest growing religion in the entire world. And we see that, and this is not 
because of the humans that drove it. This is not because Paul was really successful in what he did. He was incredibly unsuccessful in what he, what he did. Peter was incredibly unsuccessful. All of these guys, by world standards, were failures. And God, in the midst of that, in spite of that, moved through and claimed the victory that we now experience. That we, people who were born all over America or all over the world, are coming together and worshiping this same God. That didn't happen because Paul was successful. That happened because the Holy Spirit acted and he moved and he kept his promise of proclaiming this to the ends of the earth. And we are witnesses to that even in what we're doing today. And so I want us to kind of look at some of the bigger takeaways from the book of Acts. And these, a few of these were things that even Frank mentioned when he opened uh, kind of the book of Acts, that we were going to see some of the major themes that we were going to see. And I want to remind us as a church of those things. Because I think that if we walk away not knowing these things, we will miss a big portion of what God was hopefully trying to teach us, what God was teaching in my own heart as we walked through this. The first is that hope is found in the resurrected Christ and the Holy Spirit moving through his church. This is one of the things we talked about at the very beginning, that the message of the apostles is consistent, that Jesus died and then he rose again from the dead and is alive today. And because of that, because of his work in atoning for our sin, forgiving our sin, and then conquering death and the dominion that Satan held in the world through his resurrection. Now, everybody has access to the Spirit. Now, everybody can be brought into this community of the Spirit and be sent out back into the world to proclaim his goodness. That is the consistent message. That is our hope. And if we ever as a church stray from that, then shame on us. Because this is what drives this. It is not our cunning. It is not our programming. It is not how moral we are even. It is the fact that Jesus Christ was dead and is now alive. We worship a living and true Savior. That is the hope that we have. And not only that, but one thing we have seen is not just the work of the resurrected Christ, but the work of the Holy Spirit. And if we miss that this is a story driven by the Spirit, then we have missed the book of Acts. This was a, this was a story about how the Holy Spirit moved in his people and is continuing to move to this day. And I have to ask the question, how present is that reality in our minds? That we're not just a bunch of people that think the same things which we're not, by the way. There were not a bunch of people that just agree to come together and do stuff together on Sunday mornings. We might do small groups. We might do that stuff. That we are actually a people that has been filled by the Holy Spirit, that has been brought into his temple, brought into his body, invited to his table to live out his mission. How often is that something we think about when we're walking through life, when we're going to our jobs, when we're parenting our kids, when we're working through stuff with our spouse, when we're working through stuff with our friends, when we're dreaming about our education, all of those things that we're doing when we're spending money or not spending money. 
do we realize that we're doing that filled with the Holy Spirit? That we have been brought into this community that is filled with the Holy Spirit. How often is that present in our minds? I know that that was one of my deep convictions walking through this book. Is that I'm not just kind of a person in an affiliated community. That we have been brought into the Spirit of God. He is the one that holds us together. He is the one that drives us forward. He is the one that gives us power. And that we act and work in his power. I think that that is amazing. And we see this play out in the book of Acts. The second, we see that the call of the church is to be a faithful witness to the salvation of Christ and the kingdom he established. That our role, as we've been brought into the spirit, as we've been brought into this community, that our role is to proclaim that goodness and manifest kind of the ethics of that kingdom, ethics of that community into the world. I love this quote by Eugene Peterson on kind of answering the question, why church? He says, so why church? The short answer is because the Holy Spirit formed it to be a colony of heaven in the country of death. Church is the core element and the strategy of the Holy Spirit for providing human witness and physical presence to the Jesus-inaugurated kingdom of God in this world. It is not that kingdom complete, but it is a witness to that kingdom. So why church? It's because the Holy Spirit formed it to be a colony of heaven in the country of death. Let that imagery sink in. A colony of heaven in the midst of the country of death. You know, it's interesting, one of the things, uh, so the main organization that we met with, I'll, I'll share this just a little bit, it was an organization called Hope for Children when we were in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. And the way it started, I love the way it started, and you'll see this in kind of the way we, we tell the story, but it really started with the conviction of a few friends. They, uh, they were, grow, grew up in the church, had kind of heard all of the stuff, had read the Bible, and just realized that the church needs to be caring for the least of these. It talks about that in Matthew. It talks about that, I mean, it talks about that all through the Bible. That is, if you miss that in the Bible, then you've just skipped over giant sections of the Bible. And it talks about how the, the, that we should care for the least of these. And, and they began to say, okay, well, how are we doing that as a church? And it started just kind of by going out and kind of walking the streets of Addis Ababa. And in the streets of Addis Ababa, there are a lot of people living just on the streets. And they began to try to share Christ with street kids and only to realize that if you're going to go and share Christ with street kids, they don't really want to listen to you if they still are hungry, sleeping on the streets. And so they began to just gather material. They began to sleep with, sleep kind of on the streets with them, build relationships with them, grow with them, started collecting stuff and, and doing this thing, not with the vision of what it would ultimately become, but because they felt that that was their way of being a colony of heaven, living in a country filled with death. And what happened and what grew from that is this 15 years, 16 years later, this organization that is working to rescue kids out of poverty, out of child labor, out of child sex work, out of streets, uh, out of living on the streets, they serve 5,000 kids a year. What grew from just a small bit of that has grown into that. 
And they understood this, that the, colony, that the call of the church is to just be a faithful and obedient witness. And I remember, as we were debriefing at the end, one of the guys that works there, a guy named Beswick, uh, who's a very, just a sweet, gentle man, um, was sharing with us, and he, and he, re- and he read John 4.4 4 to us. And I never caught this, and I'm so thankful that he did. And this is John, they're, they're walking back and forth from, either it's from Jerusalem to Galilee, Galilee to Jerusalem, one of the two. They were going from one place to another. And it says, and he had to pass through Samaria. Now, to us, that doesn't mean anything. And if you look at a map, it actually makes a lot of sense. But if you know from the time what that meant, that a Jew would never go through Samaria. Samaria was kind of this group of what they considered to be like half-breeds between Jews and Gentiles. They were not to associate with them. Samaritans were poor. They were disenfranchised. They were kind of caught out. Just nobody really claimed them. And Jesus said, no, we have to pass through Samaria. And this is where their faithfulness played out. They didn't set up this organization. They didn't didn't set out with this great vision that we're going to do this. They were just faithful to pass through Samaria. And this is the thing that he said that he wanted to be prayed for, that they would continue to be faithful in passing through Samaria. The narrative of Acts spans over 30 years. What What we've studied in the last nine months actually takes place over the course of 30 years. And yes, we have hit the highlights of it, the incredible acts that happened through Paul and through Peter and through Stephen and through Philip and all of these other men, that God has worked in mighty ways. We see miracles. We see all this stuff. But the story that's kind of hidden in that is just the faithful, consistent obedience of the church over time, that they were just consistent. They walked through Samaria just as much as they walked through Jerusalem, just as much as they walked through Galilee, just as much as they walked through Antioch and Damascus and Rome. They didn't not go to the cities, but they didn't neglect the poor. And they just faithfully walked. They faithfully lived out the witness that they were called to. And through that, God moved. It was as uh, another line that Eugene Peterson uses. It was the long obedience in the same direction. And that's what we see. I hope that we don't walk away from the book of Acts thinking, man, well, our, if our church isn't every single week happening, having a healing or some miracle happen or all of this stuff happen, then clearly we are not like the church in Acts. Because the church in Acts did this regularly. This is what it looked like most of the time. Just faithfully coming together, worshiping, praying together, caring for the, the poor in their midst, caring for those who, uh, who are outside of the fold of God, drawing them in through love and through grace and through mercy. That is, this is what it would look like on a regular basis and a consistent basis, and it was through that that God worked. So the call of the church is to be a faithful witness to the salvation of Christ and the kingdom he established. The third takeaway that I want us to see is that the Spirit works through the prayer and discipline worship of the church. And this is, this is building off of what I just said. Underlying the story of Acts is the faithful prayer and worship of the church. 
And this is really, this is one of my great hopes for this church specifically. We are living in a world that is driven by preference and consumerism. We are living in this world. It is so hard for us to attend church and, make it, and not be about that. I understand that. But we come to a church where we like the preaching and we like the music. We like the kids' ministry. We like where it's at. We like how it feels. We like the coffee. I think that's mainly why we come here. We like this stuff. My deep hope for the church is that those, fa- those things would have nothing to do with why we attend church, why we worship, why we pray together, and why we commit to this body. That none of those things are factors. My hope is that we see that we do this because, first off, God deserves it. God has done something incredible in the world and throughout history and in our lives. And God deserves every bit of praise that we can give him. And secondly, that this is our hope for how God will work in our lives through time in the world. If we want to know how to live out the gospel in the marketplace, it is to practice the reality of the gospel through prayer and through worship on a regular basis. One of the things we pointed out was how attentive to the Holy Spirit Paul was. How Paul would make decisions that seemed foolish to so many people. But he said because of his deep kind of embedded uh, discipline and all in the word, he made these choices because he was attentive to the Spirit. But that didn't just happen. Paul was able to make the decision, for example, to go to Jerusalem in order to go to Rome because of the disciplined lifestyle of prayer and worship that he led. Peter was able to preach with power because of the regular habits of prayer and worship in his life. James was able to decide wisely on how grace should interact with Gentiles in the Jerusalem Council because of the disciplined practice of prayer and worship. Philip, Philip explained Isaiah 53, the Ethiopian eunuch, because of the disciplined practice of prayer and worship in his life. Stephen proclaimed his prophetic message to the Sanhedrin because of the disciplined practice of prayer and worship in his life. These weren't just flashes in the pan. This was an outgrowth of the disciplined and consistent obedience to praying to God, to worshiping with his community, to submitting to the scriptures, to singing all of these songs to God, and and, and by submitting to the teachings of the scriptures. This didn't just happen out of nowhere. And one of the things that we we have to ask is is if, if we are struggling with hearing from God, with with seeing God move, part of it might just be that God God moves when he wants to, not when we want to. So some of it might just be that. God does what he wants. If we can remember that truth, we'll be golden. God does what he wants. But in a deeper way, it might just be that we're not practicing this stuff. And I'm not saying this in a form of guilting us. I'm saying this collectively this is something that we as americans struggle with we don't we want the quick fix we don't want to hear that if you want god to move in your life become a worshiper for 20 years and then you might hear him we don't want to hear that but that's the truth we shouldn't be surprised that we can't play at a professional level if we have not put in any of the time and effort to get there and the last thing leading into it, and the reason I mentioned that is because this is a high stakes thing that we're in. This is something else that we need to see. That we are in a world filled with evil. 
that is constantly against the work of God. The last one we see is that the gospel is disruptive and will bring temporal suffering. If you notice in this book that every single place that the church goes, whether it's through Peter, through James, through Paul, through any of them, there is pushback. There's pushback from the religious, there's pushback from the heathens that have no interest in religion. There's pushback from the business community. There's pushback from the political community. There's pushback from every single sphere of life that the gospel enters into. And it's because the gospel is disruptive. There is not a single thing in this world that is okay with Christ being the king. We need to remember that. There is not a single person in this world that is comfortable with just giving their life over to the reign of Christ without the deep work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. And because of that, as this moves into those spheres, there will be disruption. And with disruption will come suffering. And when we see this play out in real life in the book of Acts, every single one of these people, and the reason I listed it off because I think we needed to hear the depth of the suffering that these people went through. These, these men and women the, uh, of the early church, the suffering that they went to because of the disruption caused by the good news of Jesus Christ. This is a story about a bunch of people who get killed, as, as Frank so eloquently put in his opening uh, sermon. So we have to ask this question, and I think it's an important question that we shouldn't shy away from. And that is, so why, if that's true, why don't we experience the kind of pushback that we see in the book of Acts? I think that that is a relevant question. That is an astute question that we should ask both of the text and of ourselves. Why don't we experience the kind of pushback that we see in the book of Acts if the gospel is truly that disruptive? Mark Laberton, in The Dangerous Act of Worship, answers the question this way. He says, so what's the problem? He says, the church is asleep. It's not dead. It's not necessarily having trouble breathing, but asleep. This puts everything that matters at stake. God's purpose is in the church and in the world. And he goes on to kind of talk about something that I think is, is delicate, but if we can't address it, we cannot move forward. One of the things that I think makes it challenging and one of the reasons why we don't experience the pushback that we have is because we don't realize the level of disruption the gospel should cause in this world. Not just in other worlds, but in specifically in our culture. We are living in the myth and the lie that we are a Christian nation. And this is hard for us to hear. But we are living in this, and this is the outgrowth of that lie. We've been, ultimately, we've been vaccinated at a very young age with the gospel. We've been given just enough, enough of the Bible to never actually fully become infected by it as we get older. This is the lie that we're born into. We've been confused a system built on biblical values for a system that is submitted to the rule and the reign of Christ. And those are two different things. 
Just because there are biblical values that have informed the way this country formed does not mean that this is a country that is submitted to the rule and reign of Christ. And because we live in this world, because we are grown and developed in this world, because we attend worship in this world, and we, and we, we live out in Christian life, we don't realize oftentimes when the lines are blurred. And this is, I think, the great thing that we as a church need to wake up to. The, the gospel is incredibly disruptive to American life. That it should cause pushback. That this should be kind of an undermining of all of these values. And this is not me saying that we shouldn't care. But we need to remember that we as a church are exiles living in a foreign land. This is not our home. This is not our citizenship. We are citizens of something different. And because of that, we need to relate to this world differently. We need to relate to it through love, through mercy, through grace. I love how Eugene Peterson talks about it, coming back to that, that we are a colony of heaven. We're not a colony of judgment and damnation. We're not a colony that nitpicks, that tries to just undermine for the sake of undermining. We are a colony of heaven. We are living out the values of the kingdom of heaven. That it is mercy that triumphs over over the things that's forgiveness and that is love that is grace that it is a constant flowing of us towards our neighbor and our enemy that this world is not about serving our needs but about serving the needs of others that is the life that we are called to live out in the midst of this and as we dig into it as we go into our various spheres the more and more we know that truth the more we will realize that the world we're living in does not support it and so I think we need to realize that, that part of the reason we do not see the disruption that we see in the book of Acts is because we are asleep to the realities of what kind of world we live in. Just because it looks nice doesn't mean that it is nice. The evil is just as prevalent here as it is anywhere else. And the culture is just as opposed to the values of the cross as anywhere else. So let's ask the question what this means for our church in this context. And I want to take the time because if we're just looking at the church in general, I, we would miss it if we didn't say, okay, well, how does this specifically apply here? Because this is a unique context. We don't just live in the world. We live in Arcadia and we live in Paradise Valley and Scottsdale. We live in Central Phoenix and all, all over the place here. We live in particular neighborhoods with particular values, and we have been brought in with particular places in the kingdom of God. So we have to ask the question, what does this mean, not just in general for the church, but specifically for our context? You know, one of the things that I noticed very quickly, because we had no option of noticing it, is the difference between the nature of the soil in Ethiopia as we walk through it and the nature of the soil here. And I'm, and I'm actually talking about physical soil. We would walk along, and so Ethiopia is a lot like the Pacific Northwest. It, it, it's very rainy, um, very wet, very kind of cold and dreary. And we would walk through, and literally our shoes would just be covered in mud. Just covered, just caked on this thick mud that you just could not shake off. And it showed in just how much they could grow there. Like I could be eating a watermelon, spit out a watermelon seed, and probably the next day there would be a watermelon <laughs> waiting there. Like, it is that fertile. And it was thick, and we had to, like, 
get people to wash our shoes. And, I mean, it, it was rough. We were not prepared for the level of mud there. And then when I come back home, and we are literally living in a desert where for the life of us, we can't grow anything. For anybody who can grow a garden here, God bless you. I don't know how you do it. This is a desert, okay? And in my mind, I was thinking about this mainly just because I had a bunch of mud caked onto my shoes. And then thinking of the spiritual reality. Obviously, there is a a metaphor that Jesus uses about how soil relates to the way the gospel comes into the heart. What's interesting is in Ethiopia, Ethiopia, although it is incredibly evil, incredibly dark in so many ways, it is the fastest growing church in the world. Just like a watermelon seed, if you just throw out the gospel, it grows. If you just put it out there, it flourishes. And I think it takes being in a context like that to realize how hard the spiritual soil is here in America. I think that we should be shocked that anything grows, that anybody is a Christian here, with how hard the soil is. And so the first thing that I think this means is recognizing that our spiritual soil is hard. And it will require a constant blend of agitation and hope-filled imagination. That it will constantly be a blend of us digging in and recognizing what is it that makes it's so hard to hear the good news of Christ in our context. What is it that makes it so challenging for us to hear this? And agitating it, pushing against it. My hope is that you can't go a year here without being uncomfortable at least a few times. Because that means that we, we would be doing our jobs. And I'm not saying that we're always right and you might be uncomfortable because we say something stupid. That always is a real thing and I hope that doesn't happen. But we need our, our own hearts agitated. Kind of, we need it dug up. We need it tilled a little bit. And the second is we need to remind people that as good as we might think life is here, life in Christ is better. Life in Christ is better. That as good as what we might think we have here, the kingdom of heaven is better. And I hope that as a church, we continually proclaim that truth. You know, I've heard uh, people say that Phoenix is a testament to man's arrogance. That the fact that we have a giant metropolis here in the middle of a desert with no natural water, with no anything else, that we live here, it's a testament to the fact that man can do anything. Uh, and that's not hating on Phoenix. That's just, I've heard that. And I hope, my prayer for this church is kind of the same thing, that this would be a testament to God's goodness. That in the midst of the desert of the West, that God's church can still flourish. That there can be a colony of heaven even here. That's, that is one of my deepest hopes for this church and for the church here kind of in this country. It, against all odds, this can be a colony of heaven in the land of death. The second thing that I think it means particularly for this context is that we, we need to have humility in understanding our place in the kingdom of heaven. We need to have humility in this. Jesus minces no words in saying this, that the kingdom of heaven is for the poor. There's a reason why when you throw out the, the gospel, 
in Ethiopia and other parts of the world that it just grows. And that's mainly because God intended it to happen that way. The kingdom of heaven is for the poor. We are kind of the camel that enters through the eye of the needle. That's kind of what we need to realize, that we are, we are, we are that people. We are privileged. We have been born with so much more. And that wasn't your choice, really. That was just where you were born. That was just how we lived life. I, was born at, uh, I wasn't born there, but I grew up at 56th and Greenway. So I grew up in this area. I grew up in this world. And we need to realize that because of that, we need to enter into this community differently. Although we might be first in this world, we are last in the kingdom of heaven. And that should change the way we interact with it. For one, that should cause us to go and walk through Samaria, not because we need to serve them, but because they need to serve us. They need to teach us. They need to grow us. We need to learn what it truly means to rely on Christ through them. And secondly, it needs to, we, we need to recognize our role specifically in being generous and being advocates. Those are two things that really I took away both from reading the book of Acts and even being in Ethiopia, thinking kind of back and forth between what is our church, what does the gospel look like in our church? What I want us to grow in continually, what I see our role growing in, the place that we have in this is through our generosity, which I think we do really well, and I want to continue that, and our advocacy. Because we have been born into privilege, we can advocate for people who weren't. And that is one unique play, way that we can intersect with the way the Spirit is moving in this world, and I hope that that continues to grow in the life of this church. The last thing that this means in our context is that there would be a commitment to prayerful and faithful obedience in proclaiming the resurrected Savior in word and in deed. I want to close by reading a quote from Leslie Newbegin in his book, The Gospel in a Pluralist Society. I have come to feel that the primary reality of which we have to take into account in seeking for a Christian impact on public life is the Christian congregation. How is it possible that the gospel should be credible, that people should come to believe that the power which has the last word in human affairs is represented by a man hanging on a cross? I am suggesting that the only answer, the only hermeneutic of the gospel is a congregation of men and women who believe it and live by it. I am, of course, not denying the importance of the many activities by which we seek to challenge public life with the gospel, evangelistic campaigns, distribution of Bibles and Christian literature, conferences, and even books such as this one. But I am saying that these are all secondary and that they have power to accomplish their purpose only as they are rooted in and lead back to a believing community. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we come, God, as a church hopefully humbled, Lord, by the incredible work you do through incredibly weak people. Lord, that this isn't about how well we accomplish our task, but Lord, the fact that you are the one accomplishing it. And Lord Jesus, I pray specifically for this church. Lord, as we worship and pray together, as we sing and as we reflect, as we read the scriptures and study them, as we hear from one another, God, I pray that you would develop in us a discipline that turns to you. Lord, that sees your hope, the hope of a resurrected Savior, triumphing over all things. Lord, I pray that we would be a colony of heaven living in a country of death, that we would recognize that this place is not our home. That this is not where our citizenship lies. 
Lord, and that we can be bold in how we proclaim the truths of your gospel in the public life. Lord, that this would be a colony of heaven living in a land of death. Lord, we pray these things in your name. Amen.